Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. There's so much to discuss. It's an amazing, amazing just conglomeration of ideas that the Torah is just throwing us in Beloscha. Beloscha begins with the lighting of the menorah. And it says that Aaron Akoyin didn't change the way the menorah was lit. In other words, Aaron followed the instructions of Hashem. Now Rashi somewhat mysteriously points out the fact that the reason why the Torah is saying that Aaron didn't change the order of the lighting is in praise of Aaron. But all the rabbis have a question on this, which is that would the great Aaron Akoyin, one of the greatest human beings that ever lived, who was, by the way, equal to Moshe. Now, how so? How was Aaron equal to Moshe? First of all, interestingly, it usually says in the Torah, Moshe and Aaron. But sometimes it says Aaron and Moshe, just so you know. And the explanation is, is that in terms of what Moshe had to do in this world, he did 100% of it. And what Aaron had to do in this world, he did 100% of it. So just because Moshe, so to speak, had perhaps a bigger job, it seems like perhaps Moshe was greater. But no, each did 100% of what they were supposed to do. So Aaron was every bit the equal of Moshe, which in a way gives each of us hope and a new way to look at our lives. In other words, the question isn't, what are you compared to Moshe? Or what are you compared to another person? The question is, what are you to yourself and to your own potential? You see, a lot of the angst and the unhappiness of this world comes from comparing yourself to another person. They, they, there's a, I don't know what organization it is, maybe it's AA, I'm not sure, but there's an idea called compare and despair. Like just by virtue of the fact that you're comparing yourself to someone else creates despair. But the truth is, is that you and another person, other than the fact that you both inhabit flesh, have virtually nothing to do with each other. I mean, yes, on a deeper level, we all share the same soul and we're all one. All of this is true. But at the same time, in terms of what you have to accomplish and what another person has to accomplish, have nothing to do with each other. Their success is not coming out of your pocket. You know, like I always like to say, if you don't have a Ferrari, it's not because God ran out of Ferraris, right? There's, it's just everything is very, very individual. So, so the idea that someone should be jealous of another person, or someone should, God forbid, have a bad eye for another person. It's not only is it not necessary, but it comes from a complete misunderstanding of who you are and what they are. Okay. That's why Rib Shlomo says that if you can't have joy for another person's joy, you don't know what joy is. Very, very important idea. And then also, just because it's such a classic teaching and we're on the subject, let me just add to it. There, there are two words which are very, very interesting. And this 
This is not just a simple Devar Torah, just so you know the source of this. This is from the Sefer Yetzirah, which is like, you know, before the Zohar. In terms of the sort of primary mystical repository of Torah information, I don't know that you get earlier than the Sefer Yetzirah, for the reason that it's, it's attributed to one of three people, by the way. Adam HaRishon, the very first person who lived. Avraham Avinu, the first Jew. Or Rabbi Akiva, who Moshe says, why did you give the Torah to me? Why didn't you give it to Rabbi Akiva? So the fact that those are the three candidates for the authorship of the Sefer Yetzirah, do you know what that means? Who wrote it? It means it doesn't matter who wrote it. That's what it means. <laughs> In other words, if the rabbis are giving you these three people as the candidates for authorship, that means that whoever wrote it was holding at the highest, most exalted prophetic level. That's what that means, okay? So what does the Sefer Yetzirah say? It sounds so simple. It sounds like something like, you know, like a kid could say, you know, in, you know, in one of those like occasions where they bring up like a little boy or a little girl to, to give a Devar Torah before, before a group of people. But, but don't, be, don't be fooled by the simplicity of this. This is deep, deep, deep. If you take the word nega, nega means a blemish, but it's actually more than a blemish. It's actually like a severe blemish because a nega is, is, is really the headquarters of tsaras. Saras is translated as leprosy, but it was more than leprosy. It was a physical manifestation of a spiritual malady. It came really from Lushan Hara speaking evil. There, there, there are all sorts of problems with, with why one would have a nega, but it's a blemish. Now, nega is spelled nun gimel ayin. That's nega, okay? Now, the letter ayin is a very interesting letter in Torah. There's, a, there's a, a lot about the letter ayin. We won't go into it now. But ayin is not just the name of a letter. It's also a Hebrew word, which means your eye. Now, this is what the Sefer Yitzirah, remember, the Sefer Yitzirah, the deepest of the deepest sources, points out. That if you move the ayin in the word nega, to the front of the word, right? It's the last letter of the word. You're now going to make it the first letter of the word. It spells oneg, which means joy. It's actually more than joy. It's a higher level of joy. It means bliss. That's how Reb Shlomo translates it. So in other words, where you place your eye can determine whether you see something as wholly damaged or a source of joy. You know, I had this experience yesterday, or this Shabbos, this Shabbos. There was someone who was just, you know, I, I, I confess my sins here, right? Of being impatient. There was someone who was talking, and they were going on and on and on and on about something that I just, I, I, I didn't have patience. I really didn't. And, you know, I'm by profession a comedy writer. And they, they were recounting a comedy routine in an unfunny way, <laughs> in great detail. <laughs> Which, so this was like a real bullseye for, in terms of my Achilles heel, right? 
And I went from thinking, wow, I, this is really hard to listen to, to thinking, this person is enjoying recounting this so much. This is giving them so much pleasure. And then I started taking pleasure in how much pleasure that other person was experiencing. In other words, I, I transformed the nega into oneg. I moved my eye, how I was perceiving what was going on, and then all of a sudden, I was like really enjoying something which was like totally aggravating a moment before. Now, I wish that I could say that I was on this level. <laughs> I'm not. But every once in a while, you know, God gives you a trampoline <laughs> and you, you experience something higher than yourself, you know? But thank God for those moments, right? So, so that's real. That's real. Okay, so let's get back to this idea of the menorah. Because the menorah is the source of light. And as I told you, we have a question about the menorah. Because the Torah is praising Aaron Akoin for not changing the order of the lighting, which God commanded him to do. That's according to Rashi. Rashi says that God is singling out his praise because he didn't change anything. So there's a lot of explanations of what that means. Because, of course, our question is, why would Aaron change anything? That's how Aaron got to be Aaron. And the Kutzkarebi says something so deep. He says, no, when it says that he didn't change anything, what it means is, you see, I really recommend that if you didn't have a chance to hear last week's talk, that was one of my favorite talks in a very long time. And I talked about the nature, I, I talked about actually the creation of light. Right? From, this is, I mean, to me, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by the creation of the world. I think maybe it's because my birthday, by the way, is Parshas Breshis. Right? So if you listen to these talks, you know that basically all year round we're talking about the creation of the world, among other things. So to get to the first moment of the creation of the void that God made within himself in order to situate the world. That's pretty awesome. That's where we got to in last week's talk. So check that out if you haven't seen it. I think I called it seeing light and mistakes, something like that. But what's the point? The point is we know that there are many stages of light. L-I-G-H-T. Many stages of light from the initial light of creation all the way down to the sun. Many stages. And so the Kutzka Rebbe explains when it says that Aaron didn't change anything, what it means is that when Aaron lit the menorah, the light coming out of the menorah was the initial light of creation. He didn't change anything. Now we have to think about that. And this is what I would like to add. I would like to add my explanation to that. Because if you think about that, that's kind of challenging. Because why, 
Look, we have this thing in Torah called tzimtzum. Tzimtzum is a very, very important concept. The idea is that God's initial light is so great that it would obliterate anything in its presence. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen electrical power plants, but I've driven by a few in my life, and they're really large. They're not small things. They're like one, at least like a city block large. They're really, really big, okay? So can, why is it, if there's so much electrical power situated in a power plant, why is it when I turn on the light in my kitchen, the entire apartment building doesn't explode? <laughs> there's every reason. There's every reason for that. Or why is it when God created the world, the finite didn't explode in the presence of the infinite? In fact, how is it even possible for God to create a world which is finite in the presence of the infinite without the infinite obliterating the finite? Just on a physics level, how is it possible? Like, if I were in real estate, do you know where I wouldn't develop a housing project? In the middle of a nuclear explosion. <laughs> that would not be my first choice. Because what's going to last? Aside from a thousand other questions. So, what does God do? God steps down the light each stage along the way. Now, there's a phrase that I think is extremely evocative and can help you visualize this process of tzimtzum. Rich, remember, is like we're talking about, see, many people think that there's the spiritual realm and there's the material realm. And somehow they're two separate entities. But if you learn a little bit of Torah and you use your brain a little bit, you'll understand that it's one spectrum. The light travels into materiality. And now I'm going to give you a helpful visual for you to kind of wrap your mind around this a little bit better. And that's this phrase. You ready? Thick light. Thick light. Normally speaking, we don't think about light as having any viscosity or any thickness to it. And yet, as we go from that initial light of creation down toward the material world, what happens at, at each stage of tzimtzum, at each stage that God compacts the light, the light becomes thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker until it becomes materiality itself. Now, I'll give you another visual. Imagine an ice cube. Now we're going to go the other way. Instead of going from the initial light to materiality, I want to bring you from materiality to the initial light because maybe the way your brain is wired, that might be easier to grasp. Imagine an ice cube. What is the active molecule of ice? And the answer is H2O. That's the molecule of ice. 
That's what ice is, H2O. Okay, fine. Now, imagine water, right, above it. What's the active molecule of water? H2O. Well, wait a second. Something without changing any of its components whatsoever, or of its essence whatsoever, just changed forms. All right, you know when you boil tea, you make tea, and that water vapor comes out? What is that? That's now a gas. So you're going from a solid to a liquid, now to a gas. What is the molecule of water vapor? H2O. Again, you've completely changed the form without altering the essence at all. So it goes from solid to less solid to basically invisible. Now imagine that reverse process, the light coming down and the light going from, so to speak, water vapor to water to ice. And now you have another way of trying to wrap your mind around how the light becomes the world, the material universe that surrounds us. And you also get another visual, how God saturates this entire world. It's just that he becomes more and more hidden, not less and less present. Remember, people think they associate hiddenness with abandonment. God is hidden in this world. He has not abandoned this world. He's totally present in this world. Like I gave an example the other day. Imagine you walk into this room and I'm in, you know, I'm in the, you know, a closed, I'm in another room within this building. And then you say, oh, I guess David hasn't shown up yet. No, I'm 100% here. You just can't see me. <laughs> God is as present in this realm as he is in the highest heavens. He's just more hidden. Okay, now let's get back to this idea of the menorah. So what did the Katsuka Rebbe say? The Katsuka Rebbe said that Aaron HaKoyin didn't change, and that's in praise of Aaron HaKoyin, but how did he not change anything? That the light coming out of the menorah was the initial light of creation. Okay, now let's think about that. Because our question is, if that's the initial light of creation, why doesn't he light the menorah and then the entire world explodes? <laughs> you know, I'll tell you something awesome. Awesome, awesome. So I heard from Reb Shlomo that I believe it was the, the, the daughter of the Zidachayva Rebbe, or perhaps it was the daughter of another Rebbe who had married the son of the Zidachayva Rebbe. But one way or another, this, this is about the Zidachayva Rebbe. So, so it was her first married year, so it was her first time having Hanukkah with her father-in-law, right? Who again was the Zidachayver. And he lit the menorah, and as soon as he lit the menorah, he ran out of the room. 
And so afterwards, he comes up to his new daughter-in-law and he says, so, you know, it's your first time in Zidichayv, first time with the family. What'd you think? And, you know, she was a little bit hesitant. She said, well, you know, to be honest, when my father would light the menorah, he would sit with the candles for a long time. In fact, you're supposed to sit with the candles for a half an hour, by the way. Okay? You lit the menorah and you ran out of the room. And he said back to her, you know, instead of asking me why I didn't sit longer with the candles, you could have asked, how is it possible that I lit the menorah and still was able to live? I remember the first and only time I was at Morasamach Pela, the kfarim of the Ab, our holy mothers, Adam and Chava. I remember I, I got to the kever of Abraham and I literally ran out of the building. I literally ran out of the building. I couldn't take it. So how are we to understand that the initial light of creation came through the menorah? So I'm going to give you two explanations. One explanation I'm not crazy about. This is just me talking, by the way. But I'll give it to you anyway. Actually, I'm going to give you three explanations. The first explanation is that the whole menorah was miraculous. Remember, Moshe didn't even know how to make the menorah. Couldn't, couldn't understand how all these different parts fit together from one piece of gold. And Hashem instructed him. So there was something miraculous about the, even the construction of the menorah itself. And somehow that miraculous kli, that miraculous vessel, could transact light on a miraculous level. Okay, that's... That's an explanation. Doesn't do it for me personally, but that's an explanation. Another explanation is that it's metaphoric. That the menorah, all the chachamim will tell you that the menorah stands for Torah study. And that when you learn Torah, that you summon the initial light of creation. I think that's a, for me personally, that's a better answer. By the way, when it says, when it talks about the creation of light, I have a support for this answer. Because when it talks by, about the creation of light, the B'nai Saskar says that when it says Esha Or, which means the light, and it's talking about, you know, Vayahi Or, that light, right? When it says Esha Or, Esha Or, believe it or not, amazingly, is Gamatria. 613. So where did God put this initial light of creation? This hidden light of creation, right? The Or Haganus, where did he put it? He put it in the Torah itself. So that when you learn Torah, that initial light of creation comes out. Okay. Now I want to give the answer that means the most to me. And by the way, why I'm telling you all this to begin with. And the answer is, is that, that I'd like to suggest, is that all of us are menorahs. Every single one of us is a menorah. And every one of us is transacting light. And let me just 
backtrack a little bit and just tell you that, that Kabbalistically, there's a very, what I'm saying now is not metaphoric, is, is actually real. There's something called the Kav. The Kav is that ray of light that God shot, that God shined into this vacated space, or in Hebrew we say the Chalal. Right? And again, we talk about all this in last week's talk, if you, if you want to get more on it, okay? So God makes this vacated space within him, which is still filled with light, by the way, because there can be no space that isn't filled with godliness in the universe. So God makes this, lessens the light. He makes this vacated space. He lessens the light so that God can create a realm where free choice is possible. That's the idea. And this ray of light gets thicker and thicker and thicker as it creates the material world. This kav shines all the way down. And do you know what the end goal of the creation of the universe was? Not the creation of a universe. Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver explains it very clearly the goal of God creating the world was the creation of the human being. Very important. It's not just that God wanted to create a world filled with human beings, or God wanted to create a world and filled it with human beings. The goal of creation was the creation of the human being, and God made a world to house and situate the human being. Very important. Very, very important. Now that kav is a ray of light. Now if you look at yourself, you'll see that every single individual in the world is a straight line. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I mean, look at all the different shapes of creation. God made each one of our faces different, but our essential physicality is a straight line. Isn't that interesting? Because God has no shortage of ideas. Just open your eyes and look around, and you just see the, the vast array of God's imagination, which is endless and beyond endless. And yet, the single goal of creation itself is the human being, and we all are a straight line. Do you know why? Because all of us are the end of the kav, this ray of light, which has now become material and has now become you. You are the ray of light. You are the ray of light. But it doesn't stop there. For many people, it does stop there. And this is very tragic. The idea is that that light is coming down into you at all times, and it has to leave you. You have to circulate that light. I told you, I heard from Rabbi Weiss, Abner Weiss, who said in the name of the Zohar, a source of disease in this world, right? God forbid we should all live long and be healthy. 
But the Zohar creates this imagery, which is fascinating, which is a dam which holds water, and the water can't flow out of the dam because it's dammed up. And as everybody knows, stagnant water is one of the headquarters for the production of disease. So the Zohar makes this connection and says that there's light coming into us at all time, but if we keep the light stagnant inside of us, that that's very, very negative and produces negativity. And I came up with the phrase that I've been thinking about that I want to share with you, which is stale light. You don't want the light to get stale inside of you. It's got to flow out of you, right? Now, interestingly, the Mishnah in Olos says, do you know the... So, so all the Kabbalists are telling you that this Kav, this ray of light, can be compared to the letter Vav, because Vav is a straight line. And Vav is a connector, right? So you're connecting... You're the connection between this world and the highest worlds. By the way, I'd like to say that that's why in Hasidic shtibels, the Hasidic Rebbe gets the sixth aliyah. That's the vav, because that's the connection between heaven and earth. Right? That's a special aliyah, the sixth aliyah. So the Mishnah in Olo says, your fingers are vavs. Isn't that wild? Meaning to say, this light, this kav is coming from the highest place. It flows down into you, and now it's got to flow out of you through your actions. Right? Because your fingers are vavs. You're circulating the light out of you through your actions. That's why it's very important not just to have good intentions, but to do something. Even if it's just part of a mitzvah. There are a lot of people who think, you know something, if I can't do the full mitzvah, if I can't be fully observant, then I can't do anything. I, I was talking to someone, someone close to me, who I love, and, you know, he's not quote-unquote observant. You know, he does things. Those mitzvahs, of course. But, you know. And he said to me, if I can't do everything, then it's meaningless. And therefore, I'm not going to do anything. And I said to him, can I say back to you what I just heard you say? And he said, yes. And I said, what I just heard you say is that you want to serve God with all of your heart and with everything. But because for whatever reason you're not in a place where you can do that, you feel as though you can't do anything. Is that what you just said? And he said, yes, that's what I just said. So I gave him the example that imagine you're walking down the street and you see someone, a homeless person, Rahman al-Itzlan, sprawled out on the sidewalk in the sun. And you say, that person hasn't had a good meal in the longest time. You know what, I want to buy, you know, I want to buy him a steak dinner. And you reach into your pocket 
and all you have is $5, and you say, you know what, $5 isn't going to buy him a steak dinner, and you keep on walking, <laughs> and you give him nothing. <laughs> Your soul is that homeless person. <laughs> that homeless person would have loved that $5, would have loved that $5. Your soul is hungry for any piece of a mitzvah, do you understand if you break down the infinite into parts, each part is infinite? Like imagine you've got a, a, a roll of yarn and you pull the string on the yarn and then you take one snip from the yarn. If the yarn itself is infinite, each snip of the yarn is a piece of infinity. If you break down a mitzvah, let me tell you something, tefillin for instance, Tefillin, believe it or not, is two separate mitzvahs. The arm tefillin and the head tefillin are two of the 613 mitzvahs. So if you were to say, you know what, I can only, I only have the arm tefillin, so what good is it to put, I, I, you know, I don't have the head tefillin, I can't do the mitzvah. No, the, each part, in that case, they're actually separate mitzvahs. But even a part of a mitzvah is a mitzvah. So a lot of people think that if they don't do the entirety of the mitzvah, it's not only meaningless to God, but somehow it's an, it's an affront to truth. And one of the tricks of the Yetzirah, one of its most devastating tricks and effective tricks is the following. You, you want to serve God with all of your heart, or you want to be a person of truth. You want to be a person who's upright and has integrity and decency, Right? And so the Yetzirah says, well, if you can't do the whole thing, that's not decent. <laughs> that's not truthful. So you as a man of truth should not do the mitzvah. <laughs> Don't do the mitzvah because you are a man of truth. And you say, yes, I am a man of truth. And it would be a hypocrite for me to go against my conception of truth by doing something untruthful, which is only part of the service to God. <laughs> Therefore, I will not serve you, God, from the standpoint of my sincerity and truth. And the Yetzahara goes, ah. <laughs> Success. <laughs> Success. Do, do you hear that ju judo flip? <laughs> How the Yetzahara takes your best quality wanting to serve God with sincerity and truth and, and turns it against you and makes you now not do the mitzvah from a standpoint of I don't want to be a hypocrite? This is the Yetzirah. This is the power of the Yetzirah. To make you think bad is good and good is bad. And by the way, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver brings that that's the shifting sword guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden. That sword is being turned constantly, 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 keeping us away from the tree of life. How does it do it? By making us think bad is good and good is bad. So let's go further. Each one of us is menorahs. So I don't mean that in a, in a casual way. What I'm telling you, what I just showed you, is that this ray of light goes from the beginning of creation 
gets compacted down to the physical realm, ultimately manifests itself as you. That you are that kav, you are that ray of light, and then that ray of light comes into you, and then it has to go out of you. It has to flow. That's the divine flow. It has to flow out of you through actions. Actions are primary because this world that we inhabit is called Olamasiya, which is the world of action. This is not the world of good thoughts. By the way, nothing against good thoughts. Very important. But it's the world of doing something. That's why the mitzvot are so action-oriented. Because the idea is to get the light out of you into the world. To get you to shine. Like the menorah. You have to shine like the menorah. Okay, so now we see that it's not a metaphor, that each one of us are menorahs, that this is real. But now we have to return back to our initial question, which is, when I shine, when I do chesed, love for another person, when I do whatever, whatever it is that I'm doing that's positive in this world, when I'm shining, is how do I shine the initial light of creation? Aren't we back to our initial problem that if I put on tefillin, the world should explode? <laughs> how are we escaping our initial problem? And so I want to give you my answer, okay? So I heard Rabbi Shlomo Katz say this recently, and since he said it, it's so true, I can't even tell you. As someone who was there, I can just tell you how true this is. Can't stop thinking about it. Reb Shlomo would begin every talk with, everybody knows, and he would end every talk with, what do we know? He would begin every talk with, everybody knows, and end every talk with, what do we know? What do we know? In other words, he would take you from this place of quote-unquote knowing and then lead you to this place of not knowing. He would expand our consciousness. The Torah expands our consciousness till we get to the place that we understand that God is here but is beyond, 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 beyond. And we can call that awe, that state of mind awe. We can call it yira, right? And so here's how I think we manifest the initial light of creation. In the following way, we take what's absolutely beyond us and we absorb it and we transact it to the level of what do we know? To the level of yira, to the level of awe in this world. And that that's how that light, which was beyond us, enters into this world through this pipeline of us expressing awe and wonder at the majesty of God and the infinity of God. And that's how we don't change the light. 
by living in this world in that way. So one more thing. There's a very interesting thing in, in the Parsha where Eldad and Medad say that Moshe is going to die. And Yeshua hears this. He's very concerned. He runs to Moshe and he says, Hey, Moshe, they're, they're prophesying that you're going to die. And Moshe's reaction is like this amazing, beautiful reaction is like, he doesn't care about himself. He says, Alavai, it would be awesome if everyone were prophets. What do you mean that they're prophesying illegally? You know, it would be great if everyone is just prophets. That's Moshe Rabbeinu's reaction. So hinting at Moshe's leaving this world, the Talmud says in Tomorrah, that when it was time for Moshe to leave the world, he said to Yehoshua, is there, do you have any questions for me? And Yehoshua said to Moshe, you know that I never left your side. Meaning to say that whatever questions Yehoshua had for Moshe, that they were answered during, during Moshe's lifetime and that Yehoshua was good. So Yehoshua didn't ask anything. And the Talmud then goes on to say that because he didn't ask anything, 300 halachas Yehoshua immediately forgot and he became unclear, uncertain about 700 more. And so I was thinking about that. 300 he forgot and 700 became uncertain to him. And as we've discussed many times, if you want to take an x-ray of the universe, you know that there are 10 spherot, these 10 energies, and they're divided into the upper three and the lower seven. So this idea of 300 and 700, and the 300 are the highest spherot, they call those the Gimel Roshonos, Right? That's beyond, beyond, beyond. That's the top, top, top of heaven. When Shviras HaKalim happened, the, the shattering of the vessels, they weren't damaged at all, those top three spherot, just the lower seven, which stand for this world. Okay? To give you a little Kabbalistic terminology, the lower seven, that's called the Zion Tachtonim, the seven lower ones. Okay? So that's us, so to speak. And I thought to myself, wow, 300 he forgot and 700 became uncertain to him. You know, whenever you've got big round numbers like that, it seems like the Gomorrah is crying out, Darshan me, Darshan me. So, you know, you can drop the zeros and all of a sudden you've got three and seven. That's called misparkutten. It's a form of gematria. And I thought to myself, let's just apply this to you and me. When you forget what's above you, that's the top three, you become uncertain about everything about you. That's the lower seven. The top 300 were forgotten. The lower 700 he became uncertain about. When you forget about the above, you become uncertain about this world, about your life, about everything that you know. And we'll say it in a positive way right now. If you know 
that there's something above you. Then a level of certainty comes into everything about your life, your mission in this world, why there's a world, why there's a you, and what you need to accomplish. I'll just tell you what Rabbi Kamenetsky said that Yehoshua could have said to Moshe. He could have said to Moshe, you know me, what more do I need? What else do I need? So I want to go further, I want to go deeper, and I want to talk about living in this world a little bit more and how we do it. So, you know, there's this parallel that the Ramban makes between the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai and the Mishkan, the tabernacle that was in the desert. And he points out that in both places, the Torah, it was an ongoing that the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was an ongoing recreation of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And of course, the best example is that the tablets of the Torah were given at Mount Sinai, and the tablets of the Torah were housed in the Mishkan. Okay, very good. Now, there were miracles that happened at Mount Sinai, miracles that happened in the tabernacle. Another great parallel. But now I want to give you a strong visual, okay? Which is that the Jewish people encamped around Mount Sinai and they also encamped in our travels through the desert during the 40 years, we also encamped around the Mishkan. Do you see that? Can you visualize that? So that it was very parallel to Mount Sinai, the Mishkan. We both, we encamped around both of those things. Okay, very good. Now, I'll tell you something that if you didn't know this, might surprise you, but this is from the Talmud, which is that for 38 years, God did not communicate directly with Moshe Rabbeinu. In the beginning of the travels of the desert, he did. And we know that was between the wings of the Kruvim, the angels that were on top of the Aron Kodesh, in the Ol Moed, in the Kadosh Kadoshim, in the Holy of Holies. And by the way, an unbelievable Torah that I saw from Chaya, that the span between the wings was approximately one ama. And he said that that's approximately the size of a human heart and also the fullness of a person's tongue. Meaning to say that just like God communicated through this size space between the wings to Moshe, so God communicates to us through our hearts and through our speech. And amazing that, that we are portals through which God communicates. And again, that's the same imagery of us being a menorah. What type of light are we shining? Are we shining this original light? Or are we shining a darkness masquerading itself as a light? And one of the bitter ironies of academia is that this period where all the philosophers decided that there was no God 
is called the Enlightenment. Really, one of the bitter ironies of human thought. God makes our brains. God, who is infinite, makes our brains which are finite. And then we use our finite brains to tell God what he's capable of and not capable of. It's absurd. It's absurd. You know, I, I noticed at one point, in terms of the zeitgeist, that it feels like to me that there are two movements in the world. One movement feels like, okay, we don't know absolutely everything there is to know. That's true. But we will. We're on the path to knowing absolutely everything there is to know. That's one camp. The other camp is, what are you talking about? <laughs> God is infinite and we're finite. By definition, we're never going to know absolutely everything. As I always like to tell you, the Kutzke Rebbe says, I would never worship a, a, a God I understood. <laughs> because if you understand God completely, then you're also God. So then what do you need God for? By definition, God is beyond us. Like, I'm always, like, amazed by people who say, you know something, I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by, the, by some of these things. Some of these things are very interesting to me. Completely explain it to me, and then I'll do it, because I'm not going to put on, like, black leather boxes on my body, for goodness sakes, you know, without fully understanding what that's all about. And it's like, my friend. <laughs> the premise, the premises of God is that you'll never completely understand. That's the premise. And how could it be otherwise if God is infinite and we are his creation? Right? I was joking around the other day, but it's really true. Can you imagine going up to your parents and saying, Mom, Dad, is it okay if you start calling me Mom and Dad? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? No, no, Dad, I just feel like you should start calling me Dad now. I just feel like, you know, I've gotten to that place. <laughs> you are a creation of your parent? What arrogance! What arrogance! That the human being decides that God is an idea inside their mind. And to the extent that they don't understand, it's not true or doesn't exist. So, so we're encamped around Mount Sinai. And we're encamped around the tabernacle. And, and God hasn't communicated us, to us for 38 years. Now let me tell you something about the clouds. Because the clouds are really quite amazing. Every morning, think about it. This is why I'm giving you this visual. Like, you know how you check your email in the morning? Well, if you were living in the desert, you know what you would do? You would check the cloud on top of the tabernacle. Because during our travels, during the 40 years, how did we know when to move and when to stay? Rashi points out the fact that we stayed in many locations for years at a time. The idea that we were traveling over the course of all 40 years is just not true. It's not Torah. It didn't happen. Some places we stayed for a few days. Some places we were there for years. And how did we know when to go and when to stay? And the Torah tells us very specifically 
When the cloud lifted up from the tabernacle, it was time to go. When the cloud stayed, it was time to stay. And the Torah is extremely repetitious in this place. And the Ramban explains it's in praise of the Jewish people. It's not just repeating the same information over and over again. It's giving us various different iterations of our travels. When we were in places that we really liked and the cloud lifted, we left, even though we, re we really liked that place. When we really didn't like a place and wanted to get out of there and the cloud didn't lift, we stayed. And so what appears on the surface to be repetitiveness is actually in praise of the Jewish people. And I'll tell you from my own life, people, they've lost jobs that they loved. They didn't want to leave. Relationships have ended that they liked. They didn't want to leave. And I've told them, you know what it is? The cloud lifted. The cloud lifted, and that was the sign that God is telling you it's time to move on to the next place. The next chapter of your life lies ahead. So now, let's put these ideas together, because we see something very, very interesting. By the way, the cloud wouldn't just lift. It would go before the Jewish people and then lead us to the next place we were supposed to encamp. Now, let's think about that for a moment, because what did we just say a moment ago? For 38 years, God didn't communicate to Moshe. And yet, can you get a more hyper-specific communication than the clouds on the tabernacle? Right? Not only is it telling us when to go, it's telling us exactly where to encamp in the vast desert. God is very hidden. We're in exile. We have no base on Migdash. God is very hidden in this world. Is he communicating with us? Oh, yeah, he's communicating with us. Very, very much so. Not only is he communicating with us, he's communicating through us. And now I'll tell you a story that happened to me this week. I was amazed. I wake up in the morning, say brochas, I say korbonos, a couple other things, and I have a little bit of time before I go to shul. Maybe open the computer, see if there's anything that I have to do, and then, and then I'm off to shul. I did something this week that I've never done before. There's a quote that I saw that I love, 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 love. It's from Reb Aaron of Karlin, who's one of the great Hasidic masters. And, it, and it's, from, it's an explanation of something in Pirkei Avos. It says the following. We don't, in Pirkei Avos, we don't, know the we don't know the reward for a mitzvah. So listen to how Reb Aaron of Karlin explains this. We don't know is the reward for a mitzvah. Getting to this place of not knowing is the reward for a mitzvah. That's what I'm talking about, like the shining of the light through you, right? 
taking that which is beyond you and manifesting it on the level of yira and awe and wonder, on the level of we don't know, that is the reward for the mitzvah. It's such a good quote. It popped up on my screen. I had taken a picture of it, and I decided, you know what? I'm going to send this to some people. I posted it on Facebook. I also just scrolled down my WhatsApp and just, just, just names popped out. And so I was like, yeah, you, 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 and sent it out to a few people, including someone who I never send anything out to, a special rabbi in New York. The next day, he writes me back. He goes, oh, now I know why you sent this out. I said, oh, that's interesting, because I have no idea why I sent it out. <laughs> and he says, oh, the day you sent it out was Reb Aaron of Carleen's Yartzeit. Not only do I never do anything like that, but the person who told me that, I never send things to. God communicates through us in ways that we don't even know. Not only that, but I sent it to someone and he writes me back, very, very special guy, and he said, this inspired me so much, I decided I'm putting on tefillin. Wrote, wrote me back right away and then sent me a snapshot of tefillin on his hand. He put it on right away. What do we know? What do we know? Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.